Luke chapter 22, verse 31, we read, And the Lord said, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan hath desired to have you, that he may sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for thee, that thy faith fail not. And when thou art converted, strengthen thy brethren. Then if you would turn next to 1 Peter, chapter 5. Let's begin in verse 7, okay, and read a couple of these verses. Casting all your care upon him, for he careth for you. Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil, as a roaring lion, walketh about, seeking whom he may devour, whom resist steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same afflictions are accomplished in your brethren that are in the world. And turning next to 1 John chapter 3. 1 John chapter 3. In verse 8, He that committeth sin is of the devil, for the devil sinneth from the beginning. For this purpose the Son of God was manifested, that he might destroy the works of the devil. And then back, if you would, to 2 Corinthians chapter 2. 2 Corinthians chapter 2. Beginning in verse 9. For to this end also did I write, that I might know the proof of you, whether ye be obedient in all things. To whom ye forgive anything, I forgive also. For if I forgave anything, to whom I forgave it, for your sakes forgave I it in the person of Christ. Lest Satan should gain an advantage of us, for we are not ignorant of his devices. Amen. We'll end our reading in verse 11, 2 Corinthians 2. We know the Lord will add his blessing to this reading of his word for his name's sake. I am glad to be able to report, and I'm sure that you know this already from God's word, that the devil is a defeated foe. Among the purposes of Christ coming into this world was the purpose of destroying the works of the devil, and he certainly has been disarmed to the degree that the Christian grounded in the gospel need not give him any leverage that comes from guilt, because we have a Savior that's born our guilt, and the devil has no answer to the blood of Christ. We have the account in the book of Revelation of the devil's final destiny. We read in Revelation 20 and verse 10, And the devil that deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are, and shall be tormented day and night forever and ever. Like I say, he is a defeated foe. His doom is certain. But notwithstanding his ultimate defeat and his final destiny, there is no denying his present-day presence and activity. 
It is because of his presence and present-day activity that the Christian is told not to give place to the devil, Ephesians 4, 7, and to put on the whole armor of God. Put on the whole armor of God, Paul writes, that ye may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. So he is on the scene today. He is actively engaged today. We're further told to resist the devil, James 4, 7. To be sober or vigilant, which means watchful because of the devil, 1 Peter 5, 8. And what Christ told Peter with regard to the devil, he could say to each one of you, Luke 22, verse 31, And the Lord said, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan hath desired to have you, that he may sift you as wheat. Whenever I think of the devil's temptations, I'm always reminded of his attack on Christ himself. When Christ fasted during that prolonged time, and the devil came and sought to disrupt him, and sought to defile him, and sought to rule over him if he could. And you are familiar, I'm sure, with the method that Christ employed to defeat him. He defeated him with the Word of God. But the thing that I've always found striking, and I believe this is recorded in Luke's Gospel, it says that the devil left him for a season. He left him, not not for good, but for a season. And the thought that strikes me is, if the devil would only leave Christ for a season, uh, you can be sure that you won't be rid of him, and I won't be rid of him uh, in an instant and for good. Now, I came across an article some while back that lists ten ways in which the devil, our spiritual enemy, strives to get the upper hand. And what the author of this article did is he put that word up in upper in quotes. The upper hand. You'll see what he means as I borrow from him here this afternoon. And please don't worry, these points will be very short. You hear Ten things that, uh, ten points, oh, what time is it now? What time's it going to be? No, uh, we'll go through these fairly quickly. They'll be fairly brief. But one, the devil wants us to mess up. You get the word up there. In sin. He wants us to mess up in sin. He wants you to mess up your life. He would assist you in that, okay? And of course, we have uh, the record of him doing this in the first mention of him all the way back in Genesis with regard to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. The very first view we catch of Satan reveals him to be one who wants us to mess up by sin. And the way he does this is by challenging the notion as to whether or not sin really is sin, And he challenges the truthfulness of the Word of God. You can be sure he'll be aiming to mess you up by creating doubts in your own mind about the truthfulness of God's Word or about the sinfulness of sin. There's certainly no denying that when Adam and Eve sinned, 
things really became messed up. Who would deny that we live in a messed up world today? Uh, I, I think of my own testimony in this regard. <coughs> the thing, I suppose, that convinced me of the truthfulness of God's Word was the explanation that it gave for the state of the world today. What is the state of the world today? It's so easy to describe one word and one small word, one three-letter word, sin. Sin explains the state of the world today. And it was when I discovered that in God's Word that by the grace of God, I certainly found myself in agreement with that diagnosis. What I didn't see immediately, perhaps, was my own contribution to that. But by God's grace, I came to see that also, that I, too, am a sinner. And when the devil can provoke us and entice us to mess up our lives, then our witness loses credibility, our prayers are hindered, our joy wanes, relationships suffer, the world looks at us and sees no difference, and the enemy gains for a time the upper hand. So he wants us to mess up our lives by sin. Secondly, he wants us to cover up our sin. 2 Samuel 11 comes to mind. I won't have you turn to it, but I will have you recall the story of David. When David fell into the awful sin of adultery, in fact, I marvel when every time I think of those chapters in 2 Samuel, the man after God's own heart who sinned so grievously Oh, I would hope that no one here would know the kind of sin that David knew. Stealing another man's wife, then trying, then, then getting her pregnant, and then attempting to cover up his sin by sending the husband home. And when that didn't work, he concocted a plot to have that man murdered. Oh, the devil certainly loves to provoke us and entice us, convince us that we're better off covering up sin. We have the account as well in First Chronicles 21 and verse 1, where we are specifically told it was the devil who provoked David to number Israel. The devil is certainly aware that when we sin and when we cover up sin, then he succeeds in driving us away from God. That was true in the Garden of Eden. Uh, uh, Adam and Eve sought to hide from God. And you can see even in David's life that as long as he sought to cover up his sin, he knew anything but the blessing of God's peace and joy. He knew instead a roaring conscious, conscience and a heavy burden Compare Psalm 32 and verse 3 in that regard. Third, the devil wants us to get hung up on difficulties and discouragements. He wants us hung up on difficulties and discouragement. You've served God faithfully, he says to us. 
And what has it done for you? What good has it done? That was Job's complaint, you know. And we know what place the devil had in Job's trial. He delights when we cave in to discouragement, cower in the cave like Elijah in 1 Kings 19, forgetting God's previous blessings, focusing only on the trouble at hand. And you find good examples of that in the Psalms. Compare especially Psalm 73, Psalm 77. I love to refer to both those Psalms as the complaining Psalms. If you ever want to learn how to complain to God in a right way, consult those Psalms. And that's what we find the psalmist doing in both instances, thinking for a time until he returns to the sanctuary of God that it just isn't worth it to serve God. The devil's hand is certainly in that, as well as in driving uh, men of very high spiritual caliber into the depths of despair. It really amazes me to think of some of the spiritual characters in the Bible that were driven to despair. Moses, in Numbers eleven fifteen, he says, And if thou deal thus with me, kill me, I pray thee, out of hand, if I have found favor in thy sight, and let me not see my wretchedness. Jonah, in Jonah 4, in verse 3, Therefore now, O Lord, take, I beseech thee, my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And Peter, whom the devil requested specifically to sift as wheat, we find him going out and weeping profusely, having denied his Lord. So the devil wants us to get hung up on difficulties and discouragement. He wants us to clam up in the matter of evangelism. God has only one plan to get the gospel to our neighbors and the nations. Believers are to tell the story to others. That task falls on you. It falls on me to communicate the gospel. And it's the enemy who points out or who reasons for us not to share the gospel. Maybe you've heard the reasons whispered in your mind, like you're going to get somebody upset, you're going to lose a friendship, or you really aren't qualified to do evangelism, you're really not ready to answer the objections that will be thrown at you. And you know what? That's true. You couldn't possibly prepare for every ridiculous objection uh, that will come at you from those that are lost who seek to suppress the knowledge of God. Fifth, he wants us to reach up for position and power. The pursuit of vain glory, you could say. The enemy who himself sought the throne of God is pleased when we guard our turf and protect our positions wherever they may be, in the church, in the workplace, among peers. I'm reminded of the disciples of John the Baptist. Their turf was being invaded by the followers of Christ, John 3. 
or compare the disciples themselves in their debate with each other over who was the greatest, we find in the Gospels. And in Ezekiel chapter 28, verses 1 and 2, and the verses that follow, we discover this practice is characteristic of Satan himself to lust for greater position and power. Six, the devil wants us to break up. The strategy two started in the Garden of Eden where Adam turned on Eve and blamed her for his wrong. From the beginning, the enemy has sought to sever marriages, destroy families and friendships and congregations. He knows the church will hardly make a difference when we shoot each other in the back, so to speak. There's a text in Galatians that amazes me along these lines. It's found in Galatians chapter 5. Listen to these verses, verses 14 and 15, where Paul writes, For all the law is fulfilled in one word, even in this, Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. And listen to what he says afterwards. This is so vivid when he says, But if ye bite and devour one another, take heed that ye be not consumed one of another. Oh, you should keep in mind that the devil is relentless and is not satisfied merely to destroy families, but will aim to destroy every single member in a family as well. And if ye bite and devour one another. This is written to Christians in Galatia. Uh, If you behave like wild animals whose tendency it is to bite and devour each other. What an incredible and vivid description of the way that Christians can even turn on each other. And the devil undoubtedly behind it. And no doubt he gloats and is um, quite happy when that happens. He wants us, this is number seven, he wants us to build up our own kingdoms. He does not mind when we talk about the kingdom of God as long as our real focus is on ourselves. Serve God, he says, but make sure others know just how much you're serving him. In a humble way, be sure to get the word out about the size and influence of your ministry. Oh, how he desires to puff us up with pride. Eight, he wants us to cloud up the message of the gospel. Perhaps he is most devious and effective here. Without question, the enemy rejoices when the gospel message is decidedly and clearly forsaken. At the same time, though, he is pleased when the message is subtly changed, so the gospel disappears while still sounding like a biblical message. The cloudiness of the message thus keeps non-believers from hearing the truth. And this can be so subtle. I think, for example, and I I, I don't hesitate to uh, point out the man's name, Bill Gothard. The man has done great harm and damage to many, many Christians and many Christian families. 
because he places such a focus on something that in and of itself can be legitimate, but he divorces it from the gospel. And in fact, I have read uh, documentary statements to suggest that the man doesn't even affirm the doctrine of justification by faith. Very subtle ways. I, I, I had uh, my students, when I taught Galatians in the seminary, um, there is a book, I commend it to you, it's called A Matter of Basic Principles. And it's about Bill Gothard, and it's about the way that he um, subtly denies the doctrine of justification by faith and the damage that has been done. I, I had my students read that book uh, under uh, the heading of Modern Day Denials of Justification by Faith. And that man's ministry in large measure fits that bill. And the devil is behind clouding up the message Again, this can be traced back to the Garden of Eden. Hath God said, the devil asked, today that doubt takes many forms. Hath God really created all things of nothing in the space of six days? Did God really send a universal flood? Can a fish really swallow a man? Is Christ really the Son of God? Is there really only one way to heaven? Is he really risen from the dead? Number nine, he wants us to give up on prayer. He points out unanswered prayer. Some things that we have been praying for for a long time, and the Lord is pleased to make us wait to keep us praying. The devil would have us give up on prayer. Why would we seek God's presence and power when he seems to constantly deny us? And yet the answer is ready to hand. Christ would test our faith. He wants us to ask and seek and knock and keep asking and seeking and knocking. And he tells us that he will answer, though he bear long with the people of God. But will they give up? Will the Son of Man find faith in the earth? Oh, the devil would have us give up on prayer. He wants us to get puffed up with ego. This is number 10. In fact, this strategy is the root of the rest of these strategies. When we reside on the throne of our lives, the enemy is at least temporarily winning when we become self-focused. Now, Thomas Brooks the Puritan, has written a book entitled Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices, in which he traces some 33 different devices utilized by the devil to trip up and cast down the Christian. Now, don't anybody panic here. I just finished 10 points, and now am I telling you we have 33 more? Uh, no. No. Near the end of the book, though, he does list ten special helps against Satan's devices that I only want to mention to you in closing this afternoon. I've altered them only slightly to leave them with you today. Number one, this is now in 
uh, girding yourself up, preparing yourself, precious remedies against these devices of the devil. Number one, and, and tantamount, first and foremost, be grounded in the gospel. If you would avoid being taken by any of Satan's devices, make sure you're grounded in the gospel. The devil's leverage, like I said early in this message, is guilt. And if you're grounded in the gospel, you know how to handle the issue of guilt. We don't deny it. We don't blame others for it. We are in a wonderful position in Christian liberty to squarely face our guilt because we know what to do with it. We plead the blood of Christ over it and we seek his forgiveness for our sin. And then we seek him for the needed power to overcome that sin. And so long as we're grounded in the gospel of Christ, knowing full well what Christ accomplished on Calvary's cross, then the devil is robbed of his leverage over us in that regard. <coughs> Number two, be sober. Or in other words, take your spiritual warfare seriously. The church arguably is drunk today. Not necessarily drunk on alcohol, although it gives me cause to wonder uh, how much of that is true. But drunk on hedonism, drunk on worldliness. Being sober is just another way of saying be serious. Be serious about spiritual things, serious about the world to come. Give heed to your spiritual health. Number three, be vigilant which means to be watchful, okay? Uh, don't think that you are somehow exempt or that you're so uh, insignificant that the devil would have no interest in you. Oh, no, he would. He would love to destroy you. He would love to defile you. He would love to divide you from loved ones and from Christ. Be vigilant, be watchful. Number four, be assured Back to that text in 1 Peter. In fact, let me read that again. 1 Peter chapter 5. We read the verse earlier. Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil as a roaring lion walketh about seeking whom he may devour. That is preceded by verse 7, which tells you, casting all your care upon him, for he careth for you. Be assured that he cares for you. To the degree that you are assured that he cares for you, you will be enabled to cast your care on him. If for whatever reason you are doubting his care for you, you will find that a very difficult task to perform, casting your care on him. So be assured of his care. And if you doubt it, where do you go? You go to Calvary's cross where you cannot find a greater display of God's love uh, in all the universe throughout all time. You're having trouble thinking he cares for you. Look at where he went. Look at what he endured. Look at what he bore. Certainly he cares for you. Be assured of that. Again from Luke 22 verse 31, the Lord said, 
Simon, Simon, behold, Satan hath desired to have you, that he may sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for thee, that thy faith fail not. The Lord really nails the issue there, doesn't he? What would the devil have for Peter? He would have his faith to fail, and he would sift him, try him, attack him, with that aim in view, that his faith would fail. And yet Christ says, not going to happen, Peter. And why? Because you're so strong, Peter? Because you're so mighty? No. But because Christ has prayed for you. He intercedes on our behalf. And because of that, be assured, believer, your faith will not fail. Be resistant, which is another way of saying simply be steadfast in the faith. Be knowing or perceptive, verse 9, with regard to other Christians, and in contrast to being isolated, this is one of the things, you know, that makes church so important. We uphold one another in prayer. We bear one another's burdens, knowing that if the devil can isolate us, he really does have us. I remember one of my Bible professors many years ago, he was using a World War II illustration. He was saying that when these uh, bombing runs would come out of England and fly over Germany, so long as those, uh, those planes kept a tight formation, they could create a pretty formi formidable defense against enemy aircraft. And what enemy aircraft would endeavor to do is to kind of play the game of chicken with them, coming right at them, trying to intimidate them to break the formation in an attempt to escape what they would mistakenly think was a plane coming right after them, right toward them. And if they succeeded in scaring a pilot to veer away from the formation to avoid a crash, then they would have their aim accomplished. They've isolated that plane now and made it very vulnerable to enemy attack. We need each other. We keep a tight formation, so to speak, with each other by bearing our burdens, by holding each other up in prayer. Number seven, be submissive. James 4, 7, and 8, Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw nigh to God, and he will draw nigh to you. And so, when, when you're focusing on battle with the devil, don't even be thinking so much about the devil as you're thinking about God himself and Christ himself. Draw near to God through Christ and that's how you resist. Number eight, be humble. James 4, 6, But he giveth more grace, wherefore he saith, God resisteth the proud, but giveth grace unto the humble. Oh, keep very low before God, recognizing your dependence upon Christ in all things. Number nine, this one's very important, be forgiving. 2 Corinthians 2, 9, For to this end also did I write that I might know the proof of you, whether ye be obedient in all things, to whom ye forgive anything, I forgive also. 
For if I forgave anything to whom I forgave it for your sakes, uh, forgave I it in the person or more literally in the presence of Christ, that Satan should get an advantage of us, for we are not ignorant of his devices. And I find it interesting to note that it is on this topic of forgiveness and forgiving one another. Your failure to do that makes you all the more vulnerable to the devil. Oh, you have to have a forgiving spirit. And if you find that difficult, and it can be denied that there are times when it is difficult, but all you need to do is think on how much you've been forgiven by Christ for your own sins. And if you have even the least clue of how much you've been forgiven, oh, you won't find it challenging at all to forgive those that wrong you. And then finally, be equipped. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. And if you would take the time, I won't turn up the passage now, but if you want to go to Ephesians 6 and look at those elements of gospel armor, you will see that each one pertains to some aspect of the gospel and some aspect of your protection. The helmet of salvation. Let your mind be girded about with the truth of salvation. The breastplate of righteousness. Make sure you have good understanding of the imputed righteousness of Christ that has come to you fully and freely, and that gives you a position before God that is as good and as secure as Christ's position before God. Because it's his righteousness that is imputed to you. And in that manner, you'll be equipped for withstanding the wiles of the devil. So we are engaged in spiritual warfare. Let's not ever think otherwise. But let's not be disheartened or discouraged either. We are enabled by the grace of God to be more than conquerors through him that loved us. Let's close them in prayer. O Lord, as we bow in thy presence now and bring this meeting to a close, we thank thee for the truth of thy word. We thank thee for the gospel of Jesus Christ. We thank thee for forgiveness of sins. We thank thee for his imputed righteousness. We thank thee, Lord, for adopting us into thy family. We thank thee for the interest thou hast taken us. O Lord, we pray that thou wilt help us to be equipped to take on the devil whose design is to divide and defile and destroy. We plead the blood of Christ against the strong man, and may it be thy peace and thy joy that rules in our hearts. Give us victory, O Lord, over all doubts, recognizing that these don't come from thee. They come from our adversary. So, Lord, hear our prayers and take our thanks. In Jesus' name, amen.